turn with me in your Bibles to Colossians chapter 2. Colossians chapter 2. This morning we're going to be asking a question from this passage. Is it worth the effort? If someone is going through inconvenience and sacrifice on your behalf, if they're going out of their way to do something for you, you both would want the purpose of that effort to be clear, right? You would want to answer the question, is it worth the effort? On both sides, they need to know it to make sure they're not doing all this for nothing. And you need to know it so that you don't feel bad about them going through all that effort. Have you ever gone, had someone do, go through a lot of effort on your behalf for something you didn't really care much about? And you felt kind of bad that they were going through all that effort, whether it's getting this certain present for you as a surprise, but it's not something that really you cared for. You feel bad about that, right? And you want to make sure they know, is it worth the effort? If you're going to go through all of this, make sure it is worth it. All right, today, if you didn't know, is Super Bowl Sunday, if that means anything to you. Tonight, two teams will be putting forth a lot of effort because they are fully convinced that it's all worth it. I was kind of bummed the Lions didn't make it in. We lived in uh, Michigan for six years around, in Detroit, and you were just around a bunch of really gloomy but fervent Lions fans for a long time. And I was hoping for them, but they didn't quite make it. But anyway, tonight, the, uh, the uh, two teams are putting forth a lot of effort because they're fully convinced that it's all worth it, right? The prospect of holding up the Lombardi Trophy, being declared Super Bowl champs, is enough, is enough of a motivation for these players to put themselves in harm's way, exerting, sweating, getting tackled, risking injury. The prize must be worth it in order to justify all the effort put in to winning. Well, last week, we saw Paul speak of his own testimony particularly the effort that he was putting into his mission. We saw the Jesus-filled life through the example of Paul. He talks about his toil. He talks about his struggle on their behalf as he sought to preach the mystery of Christ. And today in chapter 2 of Colossians, he's going to answer that question, is it worth all the effort? And as we read in our passage, you'll see he brings up his struggling yet again, but here he's going to point to the reason for all of it, why he puts forth such effort. Look with me. Colossians chapter 2, we'll be starting in verse 1 and then reading down through verse 5. For I would that you know what great conflict or struggle I have for you, and for them at Laodicea, and for as many as have not seen me face, my, seen my face in the flesh, that their hearts might be comforted, being knit together in love, unto all riches of the full assurance of understanding to the acknowledgement of the mystery of God and of the Father and of Christ, in whom are hid all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. And this I say, lest any man should beguile you with enticing words. For though I am absent in the flesh, yet I am with you in spirit, joying and beholding your order in the steadfastness of your faith in Christ. Would you pray with me as we look into his word this morning? God, I pray that you would guide us as we look in your word that we would see that all the toil, all the, all the effort on behalf of the gospel is indeed worth it. I pray, Lord, that we would be fully convinced of the truth of the gospel, we'd be satisfied in it as we go about our lives. Guide us as we look into your word, that we would draw out the truth that is in it, that we would be faithful to your word and submitting to your word in our daily lives. In your son's name we pray. Amen. As I mentioned, Paul wants us to know why he is going through his great struggle for the Colossians, he did not want the purpose for his toil to be lost on them, but on the city of Colossae, on the neighboring city of Laodicea, and the other churches that he hadn't even met yet. 
In fact, if you look in our passages, you see two phrases that indicates Paul's intention in this passage. He begins in verse 1 saying, I want you to know something. And then in verse 4, he says, I'm saying all of this in order that a particular purpose be achieved. He is laying out for them the intention, the reason why he's saying what he's saying, what he's struggling through, what he's struggling through. Paul is saying, I don't want you to misinterpret my intentions. I want you to see clearly what I am aiming for, what I am hoping for, and what I'm struggling for on your account. And in our passage, Paul gives the reasons why his objective, his mission, is worth every bit of effort. And those reasons all stem from one overarching desire in the mind of Paul, that these Christians would have a love and a knowledge of Jesus that is so genuine and so deep that they aren't deceived by attractive philosophies of false teachers. Now, this theme is not new to us. If you've been here for our study of Colossians, we've hit on this theme multiple times. And in fact, this is not the last time we'll see this idea either. This is the theme that really runs throughout this book. But this is the first time in our book that false teaching is specifically referenced. He's going to address it heavily in chapter 2, but he hasn't directly mentioned false teaching in chapter 1 at all. He's been elevating Christ, his preeminence, his power, his authority, that he is over everything. He begins by laying forth the truth, saying this is what we should embrace, this is what we should believe, this is what we should live by. And now, as we open chapter 2, he's starting to explain why that doctrine is so important in our lives, particularly when we wrestle with false teaching. And so we need to ask the question for ourselves as we look at these passages, at these verses, how genuine and how deep is your love and your knowledge of Jesus and the gospel. First thing I want to note from our passage today in verses 1 through 3, that gospel satisfaction produces gospel depth. Paul wants to communicate the purpose of his struggle. Why is he doing it? He begins in verse 1, I want you to know. But before we directly answer that question, let's remember the nature of his struggle. In the closing verses of chapter 1, Paul describes his suffering, his struggle, and his toil as a result of his mission to make the word of God fully known. We see that in chapter 1, verse 25, which he did by warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom, which we saw in verse 28 of chapter 1, with the purpose that he might present everyone mature in Christ. So what is his struggle? Paul's struggle is to proclaim the gospel and build up disciples. And we'll see in verses 1 through 3 of chapter 2 that Paul is going through the struggle of gospel proclamation because he wants the Colossians to explore the depth of the gospel that can be found through finding comfort and unity in the message of the gospel. As we look at gospel satisfaction, how do we see this play out in our passage? Well, in verse 2, we see the dimensions of gospel satisfaction. Again, verse 2 begins with a purpose statement. It says, in order that, that, I, I am suffering so that your hearts may be comforted or encouraged as your hearts are being knit together in love. This speaks of deep satisfaction that only the gospel pr- can produce, and this satisfaction takes on two dimensions. We, taught, we see the encouragement of the gospel, and we see the unity of the gospel, He is struggling so that these believers, through the gospel and hearing the gospel, would have encouraged hearts. 
Our hearts refer to the core of our being, the center of our personality, the essence of who we are. What effect does the gospel have or should have on your heart? The good news of Jesus Christ reaches our discouraged, disappointed, and bitter hearts and strengthens it with the overwhelming truth that we've seen all throughout this book so far, that he has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light in chapter 1, verse 12. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son in verse 13. He has redeemed us and forgiven us all of our sins in chapter 1, verse 14. He has made peace by the blood of his cross in verse 20. He has reconciled our alienated and hostile minds so that he might present us holy and blameless before him in love. In verse 27, he has revealed to you the mystery of Christ in you, the hope of glory. And in verse 28, he's progressively changing you to become more like Jesus Christ. Does that not encourage and strengthen your heart? Isn't that good news worth every bit of toil and struggle and effort? Well, it was, it was worth it to Paul. And he wanted these converts to be encouraged, comforted in their hearts through the glorious news of the gospel of Jesus. That's what he does in the beginning, all through chapter 1. He talks about the comfort of the gospel, the joy of the gospel, how it's changed everything about us. The effect of the gospel in our lives should be the fundamental reorientation of our hopes and desires, which are fully satisfied and strengthened by the love of Christ. And so in gospel satisfaction, we see the encouragement of our hearts. This should, what, this should be what the initial impact of the gospel should be on our hearts. But also he talks about united hearts. Look at the following phrase in verse 2. He's struggling so that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love. And this phrase is modifying the phrase before. You might read it as that their hearts may be encouraged as they are united in love. And here we see the second purpose for which Paul struggles. The second desired effect on the hearts of Christians. Not only should the gospel encourage us to our core, but it should unite us together in love. And I love how it's phrased there in verse 2, knit together in love. We see this word translated knit together two other times, one in Colossians and one in Ephesians. If you were to skip ahead down to verse 19 of Colossians 2, you'll see the, the false teachers are described as those who are not holding fast to the head, from whom the whole body nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments grow with a growth that comes from God. In Ephesians chapter 4, verse 16, we read, from whom the whole body joined and held together, there's that same Greek word, by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Scripture tells us there is a bonding effect to the gospel message. Not only does it encourage our hearts, but it knits us together in a spirit of love. In fact, later on in Colossians chapter 3, verse 14, we're, we're exhorted, above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. So is it worth the effort? What is Paul struggling for? All of his struggles is so that the Colossians and the Laodiceans and the other churches in the area would be so satisfied with the gospel that upon receiving the gospel message and thinking about the gospel message, their hearts would be encouraged, that their hearts would be united, knit together in love. 
And so how has the gospel impacted you? Has the gospel satisfied your heart? If you're placing your hope and satisfaction in something other than what the gospel offers, I challenge you to compare your source of satisfaction to the good news of Jesus and see if your source does not pale in comparison. The gospel satisfied, the gospel encourages, the gospel unites us together. But I want, to take, I want you to take careful note of the order of priority here. We see the gospel satisfaction in the first half of verse 2. He is struggling so that they might be encouraged, that their hearts might be knit together. And then we see again another purpose statement, so that, so that you might reach all the riches of the gospel. We, so we see gospel satisfaction in the first half. We see gospel depth in the last half of verse 2, going into verse 3. In other words, we might think that it is gospel depth that results in satisfaction, right? To know gospel doctrine is to be encouraged and satisfied. While there is tr- and while, while there's truth to that idea that deeper knowledge of the gospel produces greater joy in the gospel, this verse makes the point that gospel depth does not produce gospel satisfaction. Rather, gospel satisfaction produces gospel depth. And as we've been doing, I'm going to regularly contrast the teaching of Christ to the false teaching that was present in the in Colossian church. The message of the heresy that was being presented was that depth produced greater satisfaction, that if you go deeper and deeper and deeper, if you reach down to the very bottom, it's only then that you will be satisfied, that if you go deep enough or high enough, that's where you'll find spiritual fulfillment. But Paul is arguing, not that you have to go to the very depths of the gospel before you're ever satisfied. He's arguing that the initial impact of the gospel is the encouragement and unity that it has on our hearts, the satisfaction And then with the purpose that reaching all of that satisfaction will push you toward full assurance as a result or a purpose of that encouragement and unity. So the the depth, the assurance of the gospel is a result or purpose of this satisfaction, not a prerequisite to satisfaction. In verse 2, Paul is struggling that they might be encouraged and united to reach all the riches. In King James, it says, unto all riches. It's the same idea, purpose. I I want you to be encouraged. I want you to be knit together. Unto all riches, for the purpose that you would reach all these riches. And so here's the point. Paul wants their hearts to be encouraged and united in the gospel so that they might go deeper. Gospel satisfaction is what leads to gospel depth, not the other way around. In other words, we don't have to think, well, I'm not satisfied in the gospel. Maybe I just haven't plumbed the very depths of it. Maybe I haven't gone deep enough. No, gospel satisfaction is like on the surface level. It's in the very simple message of the gospel. He has saved you. He's redeemed you. He's transformed you. There's nothing hidden. Let me show you how he's already made this point in the beginning of the book. Go back to Colossians chapter 1. In Colossians chapter 1, In verses 3 through 5, he's recounting when the gospel first reached the Colossians. He's recounting when when they first heard the good news and how they responded to it. If you look in Colossians chapter 1, verse 3, he says, We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you, 
since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all the saints, there's the unity, there's the, there, there's the knitting together in love, because of the hope laid up for you in heaven, there's the satisfaction, there's the encouragement. Of this you have heard before in the word of truth, the gospel. And so he says, you've heard the gospel, it has been brought to you, and we praise the Lord, we thank God, because when it was brought to you, it resulted in a satisfaction and a hope and a uniting in love around other believers. And then if you look down in verse 9, when he moves from his praise to his request, what does he pray for? And so from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. So what comes first, the satisfaction or the deeper knowledge? It's the satisfaction that comes first. The gospel brings joy, brings encouragement, brings unity at the front end. And as we grow in our satisfaction of the gospel, we are encouraged, we are motivated to go deeper and deeper in that knowledge. If you want satisfaction, if you want deep encouragement and unity of love at the heart level, I believe this passage is saying it is accessible and available at the front end. There is no greater encouragement than the simple message that Jesus Christ has died for you, has forgiven you, has redeemed you from your sins, that you are united to him forever, that you are a child of the king, you are adopted into his family. If you want satisfaction and encouragement, it's right there. It's not hidden the message isn't encoded. The mystery of Christ in you, the hope of glory, has already been fully revealed. That's the whole point of how he concludes chapter 1. The simple message of Jesus Christ is enough to produce a satisfaction at the heart level, and it's when you're satisfied in the gospel that you are in the best position to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding. This is actually isn't, this concept isn't too hard for us to understand. We, can, we could go to multiple other endeavors, hobbies, or passions in which we see this same logical progression. Maybe you love fixing cars. Did you take a deep dive into all the different parts of the car, how the mechanics work, how each part interacts with each other, so that it would produce a love of fixing cars? I would think not. I would guess that you entered the depths of the vehicle mechanics because you have a love for fixing cars. Perhaps it was your first exposure to it. Perhaps it was helping your dad fix his car that sparked that passion in your life. You fell in love with it, which drove you to know it more, to go deeper, to explore the depths of it. Teens, young adults, maybe you, sometimes you get caught up in the, the deep lore or the mythical universe of a game or a book series, right? Do you go deep into the lore and explore all the corners of that universe in order to get you to love that game or that book? No, my guess is that it was your first taste or experience that gave you the desire to dive deeper into the depths of that lore or that universe. I have a friend who growing up loved Star Wars, big Star Wars guy. And he loved to show off his Star Wars encyclopedia. They have those, all right? <laughs> Did he buy that encyclopedia in order to get him to love Star Wars? No. He got the encyclopedia and read through the whole thing, which he did, <laughs> because 
he loved Star Wars, right? It was the satisfaction, it was the joy that he got out of it that drove him to go deeper. And here's my point. Don't think you have to become a gospel expert in order to find satisfaction in the gospel. Satisfaction is readily available. It's what first reaches our hearts when we hear of the good news of Jesus. And as we become satisfied in its truth, it produces us in us the desire to go deeper and to know it more. And just as a side note here, if gospel depth is best reached through the encouragement of the heart and unity of the heart, then what stifles gospel depth in the life of the Christian or in the life of a church? discouragement, disunity. Where these two are present, there is no depth because there is no desire for depth. And as a result, there is no stability in the gospel. Gospel satisfaction produces gospel depth. And let's look for a moment at those depths of gospel riches in verses two through three. Paul struggles so that the Colossians and others would be satisfied in the gospel so that they might reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. There's a couple things that stand out as we read these verses. Number one, the emphasis on the mind. And number two, the emphasis on the riches of Christ. Look how many words he uses that are connected to our minds. Assurance, understanding, knowledge shows up twice, wisdom. But on top of that, he emphasizes the riches. And not only the riches or the treasure of wisdom and knowledge, but language of complete sufficiency, all the riches, full assurance, all the treasures, not some of the riches, not mostly assured, not some of the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Why does Paul want them to be satisfied in the gospel? So that they would become more fully assured and confident in the truth of Jesus Christ. In other words, satisfaction of the heart is what leads to a conviction of the mind. He makes it explicitly clear. Complete and total confidence, assurance, knowledge, wisdom is possible. It's attainable. You can have it. You can stand solidly on the truth of the gospel, being so assured of its truth and its sufficiency and its riches that you're confident that you need nothing else. You have found everything you need in the gospel of Christ. And so the question arises, if we're called to reach these riches of assurance, how do we reach such knowledge? Well, we discover that knowledge is found in God's mystery, and God's mystery is Christ. In other words, this knowledge and assurance is found in a person. And when you know this person, you receive full assurance of understanding. In verse 3, you see that all the, all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge are hidden in Christ. Don't be deceived by the word hidden to, as if it's saying that all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge are tucked away out of your reach. That's not what we mean by the word hidden. Because while the treasures of wisdom and knowledge are hidden in Christ, so are we. Colossians chapter 3, verse 3, For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. And so because you are hidden in Christ, you have access to all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge that are also hidden in Christ. And as you go deeper in the gospel, you grow in your assurance and your knowledge of it. And so if you are in Christ... 
Have you found your joy and satisfaction in him? And I guarantee you, the deeper you dig, the more confident you become, the more sure that you are. And so the question is, are you digging? Is the joy of the gospel motivating you to move forward, to dig deeper, to know more? If there is no desire to go deeper, my guess is you're struggling with a lot of doubt because the deeper you dig, the greater the assurance. Gospel satisfaction produces, leads to gospel depth, which produces an assurance that keeps you firmly grounded in the truth. And why is that so important? Paul's going to highlight that importance in verses 4 through 5. So not only does gospel satisfaction produce gospel depth, but gospel depth produces gospel stability. Just as we saw in verse 1, Paul gives another purpose statement. Verse 1, he wants to make sure they know the reason for his suffering. And here in verse 4, he wants to make sure they know the reason for his preaching. He says, I say all of this in order that no one may beguile you, it says in the King James, or delude you with plausible arguments or fine-sounding words. Paul wants them to be satisfied in the gospel so that they would go deeper into the gospel so that they would become stable in the gospel, standing firm against the deceitfulness that surrounds them. What is the greatest defense against the deceitfulness of this world? A gospel satisfaction that produces a gospel depth. It's being so content and confident in the gospel that you can discern and spot the fakes from a mile away. Let's look here for a moment at the danger of delusion. The danger of delusion is seen in the description of these philosophies that here for the first time, Paul is highlighting to the Colossians. And while he later highlights the empty and deceitful nature of these teachings, here he highlights their attractiveness. These are fine-sounding, well-crafted arguments These messages aren't convincing due to their depth or their convincing proofs. They are messages that are well-crafted to hit the right notes in your soul, to pull you in with finely tuned arguments delivered in eloquent, eloquent speech designed to make you question, how could something that sounds so good be so wrong? 2 Timothy chapter 4, verses 3 through 4, Paul says, For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching. But having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. We run into this all throughout our life, no matter what stage of life you're in. A young Christian goes off to college and hears a professor eloquently and skillfully discredit the Christian faith with arguments they've never heard of before. And they sound good, they sound plausible, they sound convincing. You pick up a best-selling book by a popular author that offers a fresh spin on Christianity that sounds really compelling. Or perhaps even a pastor will use a proof text from Scripture to authoritatively preach a legalistic distortion of Christianity. And because these arguments are so well-crafted, so plausible, we're in danger of being deceived by them. But this passage reminds us that we don't need to be afraid of such teaching. 
because all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge are hidden in Christ. It's him, in him, that you can have full assurance of understanding. In fact, it's fascinating that many philosophies and religions today look shiny and attractive on the surface, but the deeper you dig into those worldviews, the more empty and hopeless and dark they become. A while back, a couple years ago, my wife and I went out to Salt Lake City, and we got to tour the Mormon temple there in Salt Lake City. We had a pastor friend out there in Utah who um, brought us there, and he said, I'm going to get you on the evangelism tour. I guess there was two tours. I didn't know about this. There's the normal tour for everybody, and then there's a tour that you went on if they were trying to get you to become a Mormon. And so he brought us in, and these two tour guys showed up, and he said, hey, I'm a pastor here from Utah, and I have a couple friends here who want to know more about the Mormon faith. And the two tour guys kind of glanced at each other and, you know, gave each other a nod, and we went off. And they took us into this multimedia room. This, the multi, there's multiple rooms in this presentation, TV screen in each one. The room was kind of set up as like a different room of the house. And we've tr- followed the story of a family going through tragedy, loss, reunion, comfort, joy. And I'm not exaggerating when I say they pulled on every single heart string you can imagine. They didn't give a single bit of information about the doctrine of of Mormonism, the teaching of Mormonism, what they believe. It was all good-sounding arguments. It was all, don't you want this? Doesn't this look good? But if you've studied and, and, and dug down into the teachings of Mormonism, you realize that the deeper you go, the darker it is, the emptier it is. And that's not just the case with cults like Mormonism. This is the case with with any worldview philosophy that you might look to other than the gospel. In fact, most worldviews represented in our culture today depend on the fact that you don't think too deeply about them. If you're living according to your own worldview other than the gospel, do you realize that the deeper you dig into your own worldview, the emptier it gets? In many cases, the darker and more hopeless that it gets. And that's why the prevailing philosophies of our day just don't stand up to scrutiny. It's why simple questions are discouraged. Why pushback is seen as an aggression. They are not strong enough to hold up under the pressure. And thus passage tells us the gospel is. As Christians, we should never be afraid of deeper questions. We should never push back those who are seeking to go deeper. Because the deeper you dig into the gospel, the more assurance that you find, the greater the confidence you discover. And when you grow in that confidence, those well-crafted arguments reveal themselves to be what they really are, empty philosophies. And so as we conclude our passage this morning, we see the danger of delusion, but he finishes in verse 5 talking about the joy of stability. Despite his concern for the Colossians, he concludes with a note of confidence and joy. For though I am absent in body, yet I'm with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good order and the firmness of your faith in Christ. While the warning of this passage encourages the Colossians to dig deeper into the gospel, Paul is rejoicing that they're in their stability thus far. And it provides us with a picture of what life in the church looks like 
when believers are fully assured and satisfied in the gospel? What does it look like? It looks like good order. When there's no gospel satisfaction and no assurance in the gospel, there's disorder and there's chaos. When churches are not grounded in the gospel, you'll see disorder. When lives are not grounded in the gospel, you'll see disorder. In James chapter 3, where he contrasts earthly wisdom versus heavenly wisdom, earthly wisdom is marked by bitter jealousy and selfish ambition. And James says, where jealousy and selfish ambition exists, there will be disorder and every vile practice. When you live your life in accordance with the earthly wisdom, there will be disorder, there will be jealousy, there will be selfish ambition. But when you are grounded in the gospel and satisfied in the gospel, there is a settled order. Christian, is your heart in chaos? Is it, is it full of bitter jealousy, selfish ambition? Is your whole life out of order? Not just the, the difficult circumstances and trials that we all face, but is your approach to life out of order? Is your heart in chaos? Could that be due to a lack of satisfaction in the gospel and a confidence in the gospel that you're searching satis for satisfaction in something else? You're, you're searching for assurance and confidence in something else? It is a heart that is settled and satisfied in the gospel that gives you order in life, even when everything around you is in chaos. And finally, not only is, there, is stability seen in good order, but it's seen in firm commitment. Paul says, I'm rejoicing to see the firmness of your faith. Is your faith firm? Is it solid and stable? When Paul in Ephesians warns about our adversary, the devil, who prowls around seeking someone to devour, he calls us to resist him firm in your faith. Do you have such stability? and commitment to the truth that you can resist the attacks of the devil. You can. Well, why can you? Because your life has been hidden in Christ, that you have in him all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge at your disposal. But yet, I think sometimes in our Christian lives, we, we approach it like, like we have a, a massive treasure chest full of riches, Right there, it's not, hitting, it's not hidden under the ground. It's not tucked away. It's there. And we have the key in our hands. And we look around thinking, where can I find satisfaction? Where can I find the riches? Maybe somebody else has it. Maybe it's in that treasure chest over there. Maybe it's something other than the, tre the treasure that I have been given right in front of me. And Christians, even though they've been hidden with Christ in whom are hidden all their treasures of wisdom and knowledge, go looking elsewhere. And as a result, what happens? Chaos, discouragement, disunity. But if you stop and open that lid to that treasure chest and you explore the riches of the gospel and you dig deeper and you rehearse it in your mind and you consider the fact that Christ is over everything and he has reconciled all things to himself and he's reconciling you, you will find a satisfaction and an assurance greater than anything else you can find in this world. And if you do that, if you dig deeper, if you grow in your knowledge and your assurance of Scripture, what's going to happen? When those fine-sounding arguments come your way, when those plausible ideas and philosophies assault you, 
you won't have any, there won't be any sense in you that, that, that wants to follow after those. Why? Because you found it all already. You have the treasure. You have everything you need in Christ. May that be our testimony today. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you for the joy it is to be hidden in you. Lord, that we as sinners bound for hell have been reconciled, redeemed, and restored. That although we were hostile in mind and doing evil deeds, you reconciled us and one day you will present us holy and blameless and above reproach before him. What an incredible and satisfying truth. Lord, I pray that we would, first of all, be satisfied in that truth, that it would motivate us to go deeper into that truth so that we might have the assurance and the confidence to stand against the fine-sounding arguments that surround us in this world today. Help us to have a firm faith. Help us to be a church that is firm in our faith. 